This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you click subscribe to stay up to date. This week, with Christmas behind us, we're looking at the origins of some of our other winter traditions. We'll have more on those shortly, but first, let's introduce our guest, English Heritage Trustee and Professor of History at the University of Bristol, Ronald Hutton. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. So the last time we spoke was when you joined us to talk about a number of autumn traditions. Many of those had a common theme, which was the need to cheer ourselves up during a dark and rather cold time of year. And from what I understand, there's plenty of good cheer in the first tradition we're about to talk about, which is Plough Monday. So what is Plough Monday and also when is it? When is easy. It's the first Monday after the 6th of January, which is the end of the 12 days of Christmas. And it was the time at which the ploughing season began in medieval and early modern Britain. And it's a long season. It really goes on for about two months. And it's heavy, difficult work. And do we know when and where this Plough Monday originated? We know it's there by the Middle Ages because on the previous day, the Sunday, the village plough was formally blessed in the church. This is a time when most farmers are too poor to own a plough, which is an expensive and complicated bit of equipment. And so the whole village would own a plough kept in the church and would then loan it out to different farms through the ploughing season to do the work. And so this is the beginning of a very big communal agricultural venture. On the following day, the Monday, the plough was taken on its first outing around the village so that the people with it could collect money from the villagers. And this money was used towards the upkeep of uh, the parish church. Uh, This was in the heavy arable farming counties of the northeast, that's Northumberland and uh, down to Yorkshire, and the East Midlands, uh, right round to the beginning of East Anglia. So out of one village, how many ploughs might there be? Just the one or...? The richest farmers would actually have a plough each as a prestige symbol, but there'd usually be another dozen farming families in a village, and they had to take their turns with the village plough. I see. I gather there was this meal that goes with Plough Monday, and it was called Plough Pudding. Is that right? The Plough Pudding is not found until the 19th century, and only in Norfolk. But it's a Norfolk tradition that has been continued ever since. It's still made and you can get a recipe for it. It was basically a suet pudding with bacon and sausage meat inside it and herbs and vegetables added to taste. This is a hot meal. It's not like a cold pork pie or anything. It's a proper hot meal served up and all the family digs into it. You talk about it sort of being in in Norfolk. Is that where it, it would have originated? It's where we hear about it. As I say, it doesn't appear till the 19th century. It was quite popular in the early 20th century, and it mostly died out since, but there's a bit of a revival of it in the recipe books. Right, OK. Has Plough Monday been fairly well observed over the last 
500 or so years then? It was pretty well observed until the end of the 19th century. And then it ended because ploughing became mechanised. It became something done by tractors and every farm could now afford to have its plough. And once you have a, a tractor, then the farm owner himself or herself can do the ploughing. So there's not so much need to lay on plough hands. In the period after the Middle Ages, when large teams of ploughboys were still needed to manage the oxen or the horses and get the ploughing done, it was a custom for them to go around the village and collect money, but collect it for themselves instead of giving it to the church anymore. And this custom was at its peak in the 18th and 19th centuries, and often the ploughboys would perform a play in order to entertain the people as they drew the plough around. Given the fact that Plough Monday has largely died out, is there any kind of revival on the cards, perhaps? Most folk customs have been revived extensively in recent years, so it's probable that Plough Monday will be as well. But uh, although the blessing of the plough has been restored in village churches across quite a wide area of eastern England, I haven't come across any repeat of the Plough Monday festivities. Instead, there's a fair amount of winter molly dancing, which is uh, the East County's winter equivalent of Morris dancing, carried on by Morris teams going around communities on Plough Monday and the weekend before. And these days, would a modern farmer, when would his first ploughing day be after the Christmas period? Sometime in January, so Plough Monday is still a fairly good approximation. It's just that it's much faster to do it now because of mechanisation. Right, well, let's move on to wassailing. We go from Plough Monday to wassailing. Um, We've talked about wassailing before, but for people who haven't heard those podcast episodes, can you explain what wassailing is? Wassailing is the Southern English version of a whole complex of customs that uh, were found across the whole of Britain to bless a house and a farm at the beginning of the year. So sometime in January, usually the first half of it, to make the place feel fortunate and happy before the real farm work and the occupational work of the year began. The form of it in southern England, which was known as wassailing, consists of singing to whatever makes your household or your farm prosperous. So livestock farmers would sing to their sheep or cattle. Arable farmers would sing to their fields. Orchard growers would sing to their trees. And beekeepers would sing to their beehives. You almost rhymed then when you, if you'd said when beekeepers sang to their bees, um, <laughs> which would have been a nice song in itself. The spelling of wassailing... This is like was sailing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an interesting spelling and pronunciation. It's a, a relatively modern version of Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon, we uh, is be you full of health. And warriors in Anglo-Saxon epic say we to each other in the hall when they're, when they're toasting each other. So basically, wassailing is toasting farmland. And very similarly thematic compared to Plough Monday as well. There's a sort of idea of blessing and good luck and good fortune as new things begin. 
That's absolutely right. These are all customs for the commencing of the work of the new year. Now, wassling, I gather, is a Twelfth Night tradition, is that right? Why is this? Not specifically. Twelfth Night's one of the times when you can do it. Generally, wassling could take place any time in the first three weeks of January. It tended originally to take place in the first week, but with the calendar change in 1752, when all the days were moved back 12 days, a lot of people carried on doing the wassailing on what had been the 6th of January or the days around it, and had become the 17th, 18th of January in the new calendar. I see. And how far back into history does this practice of singing or or making a din around trees, animals, bees, fields go? We can record it back to the 16th century, not before, but the sort of rural communities in which it took place are not the kind of communities that would have kept records before them. So it could be prehistoric. As a fertility rite, it's an obvious thing to do, that it probably is very old. Yes, I was thinking that's possible as well. Was wassailing also done without access to an orchard and farmers who owned land or livestock or bees or whatever? Would normal people just do it? Yes, except normal people would not have a farm to which to sing. So what people did instead in villages and towns was fill a bowl with spiced ale and fruit, the wassail bowl, And they'd take it from door to door and they'd invite the householders to take a slurp of the goodies inside and give them some money in return. It's another device, a mechanism by which the poorer people in a community could get extra money at the beginning of the year to help them get through the rest of the winter. Mm. And where are people most likely in England to see or hear wassailing these days? In the West Country and in Southeast Wales, there's been an enormous revival of apple wassailing, of singing to orchard trees in Somerset, Devon, Gloucestershire, and Monmouthshire, now Gwent, in uh, the uh, recent couple of decades. It's part of a general revival of seasonal customs across the land. Now, you've got a got a few stanzas, a few lines, haven't you, from a wassailing song that we've done a couple of times before, but could you crack it out one more time for us? With pleasure. It's a rhyme rather than a song, and it's the Gloucestershire version that got collected and uh, made the standard one among folklorists. Old apple tree, we wassail thee, that thou mayst bud, and that thou mayst blow, and that thou mayst bear apples and no. Hats full, caps full, three bushel barrels full. Hurrah! Uh, I use that on my own apple tree. Yes, I think it's fantastic. And it really puts you in a good mood. And um, I think it's probably just a good thing to get these good vibrations out in a way. And Because um, they do say that actually, if you play classical music to plants, isn't there some science that it's actually beneficial to the plants? Yes, indeed. And Prince Charles was perfectly correct that uh, talking at length to plants and trees does seem to encourage them. And this is just the same thing, really, but it's almost ancient technology, so to speak, ancient advice. That's a very good way of putting it. We'll move on to Mama's Plays then, which is another winter tradition which aims to lift the spirits. 
Can you tell us what these are and do they still exist today? They certainly do. Again, there's been a very considerable revival in them. What the Mummers play was, was the 18th, 19th century version of a tradition of folk plays at midwinter, by which people, again, from the poor end of a parish, would go around the wealthier areas, the streets and the pubs, around midwinter, collecting money or food or drink for their performance. So they'd be able to make merry over the Christmas period. So Mama's plays were performed any time from mid-December until early January. And the 18th, 19th century version is a piece of knockabout comedy. It's a farce in which there is a hero combat between two boasting heroes or a hero and a villain. And one of them is slain and then ritually revived by a quack doctor. And there's loads of opportunity here for knockabout fun, topical illusion, all measure of in-jokes and a wonderful recipe for uh, putting all sorts of novelties into a, a very strong basic framework. Where does this word mama come from then? It's the medieval English expression for anybody in a ritual disguise, anybody in fancy dress. I see. And how do these plays relate to the agricultural year? They don't really relate at all to the agricultural year. Back in the Edwardian period, folklorists had an idea that Mama's plays were prehistoric, that they were a new Stone Age ritual of death and resurrection to get the crops growing in the new year. But there is no evidence for this whatsoever, and now there's plenty of evidence that they are a craze, a novelty that sets in with the 18th century. The only relevance to agriculture is that a lot of the people performing them would have been agricultural labourers in need of money or more food. Right. So a bit of a loose connection there. As we move into February, we are now looking at Valentine's Day, which is our next post-Christmas winter tradition. To contemporary Western society, Valentine's Day is all about showing love and romance through cards, gift giving and meals. Wasn't it originally a pagan festival about fertility? No. Again, this is uh, an Edwardian misconception. There was a famous Roman ancient festival round about the middle of February called the Lupercalia, in which noble young men stripped jock straps, ran around Rome flogging women and the expectation this would make the women fruitful and give them lots of children. But it died out about a thousand years before Valentine's Day is heard of. It's just too big a gap. I see. So why did the Edwardians seem to connect it to that Roman festival? Because the Edwardian folklorists were desperate to connect any recent folk customs to the ancient world. And what they did was to collect the customs in their 19th, early 20th century form and assume the form had been there since prehistory and then fantasise about ways in which these modern customs could reflect prehistoric pagan ritual. Hmm. So is there any link to um, prehistoric times with this at all? 
not for Valentine's Day. No, it's a late medieval custom that spreads through the early modern period. There are lots of folk customs that can be documented right back to ancient pagan times. It just so happens that this and indeed the mama's play are not two of them. I see. Amazing how these things get uh, twisted, really. I can understand that today's Valentine's Day with its romantic themes relates well to Lupercalia in a way, even though it's not directly connected. But how did it become linked to the Catholic Church? It grew out of the Catholic Church because the saint who presides over the day, Valentine, an ancient Roman called Valentinus, was made patron saint of birds. I'm not exactly sure why, if I knew the original Valentine legend a bit better than I might be able to say. But certainly by the 14th century, he was patron of birds. And the belief spread through late medieval Northern Europe that birds chose their mates for the spring upon Valentine's Day. And by the 15th century in England, the idea has appeared that human beings should send a token of their love to their loved one on Valentine's Day. It's first recorded in royal courts, and it may have appeared there. We don't have equivalent records for common people, so we're not so sure whether they had it or not. But certainly by the early modern period, the 16th, 17th century, it's becoming a very widespread custom among commoners. It gets commercialized with ready-made cards in the Victorian period, but then it almost dies out. Around World War I, it became tired, unfashionable, unpopular, and it fell into abeyance. And it was only revived because of the exportation of the commercialized American Valentine's card industry to England in the 1940s and 1950s. That's really interesting. So there was a good amount of time that Valentine's Day in England or the UK had really fallen out of fashion. That's right. It's, it's more like 30 or 40 odd years. Right. But we're talking about, obviously, a different St. Valentine here, this, this one who is linked with, with birds. There are several other St. Valentines in canonical history, aren't there? Valentinus is quite a common ancient Roman name. So yes, there are quite a few St. Valentines, but there's actually only two who are the candidates for our man who is patron of birds and is commemorated on the 14th of February. And he's either an ancient Roman priest or an ancient Italian bishop. And they may even be the same person. At any rate, he or they were martyred just about around the same time in 269 of the Christian era in one of the few and sporadic ancient Roman persecution of Christians. Right. Let's move on to Shrove Tuesday. This is another popular February festival. Shrove Tuesday or Pancake Day. The latter name, of course, describes what's meant to happen, which is to make pancakes, obviously. But what does Shrove mean? Shrove comes from the old Anglo-Saxon verb shrive, to shrive, which means to take somebody's confession. Shrove Tuesday is the day before Ash Wednesday, which is the first day of Lent, the greatest fast of the Christian year. And so it's an opportunity for two things before Lent begins. 
One is to binge on all the food and drink that you're not allowed to consume in Lent and to engage in all the activities in which you're not allowed to engage in a medieval Lent, which includes sex, even among married couples. And the other is to unburden your conscience of the sins you think you've committed by confessing them to a priest. So you're now ready to scrub your soul clean by the fast of Lent. So Shrovetide, the season for making confession, begins on Shrove Sunday, the Sunday before Shrove Tuesday, which is the seventh before Easter, and goes on until the end of Shrove Tuesday itself. Do we know why pancakes were chosen for this particular binging before this sort of cleansing period of Lent? Absolutely so, because to ordinary poor people, the luxuries which they can afford and which are going to be forbidden in Lent are mainly eggs and dairy produce. And so if you put eggs and butter and flour together and milk and whip them all up, you get a pancake. So you can then feast on the only kind of luxury that medieval early modern poor people or ordinary people could afford. On what Tuesday does Shrove Tuesday traditionally take place then? As said, the one just after the seventh Sunday before Easter, whenever Easter is. And so it's one of those feasts that bobs around the year from early February to uh, early March, depending on uh, when Easter is falling and how late it is. Are there any other traditions that come with Shrove Tuesday apart from cooking and eating pancakes that perhaps other foods? Not other foods so much, although eating up meat, if you can afford meat, often salted to raise a really good thirst, you can binge on alcohol. But regrettably, there are a lot of sports associated with Shrove Tuesday, which have either completely or almost completely died out. And in many cases, uh, for very good reason, are all sorts of cruelty like cock throwing, which was tying a chicken to a stake and then pelting it to death, or dog tossing, putting a dog in a blanket and tossing it up as high as you could, or nailing uh, the clothes of wealthy people to uh, wooden posts or the sides of wooden houses, and then charging them a sum of money to let them free, and football. Now, this may sound much more familiar and tame, but it's not. Because Shrove Tuesday football, traditional football, which lasted until the 19th century, had pretty well no teams, no goals and no rules. Goals could be introduced and one half of the village could play against the other. But it's really a free-for-all, a scrum, in order to try and end up with possession of the football at the end. And it's an opportunity to pay off every grudge that you've got against another member of the community in the last year. So it was quite exceptionally violent. And it often ended in serious violence. Goodness me. Those aren't really sports then, really, if you think about it. Even the football one is uh, more like a fight, really, a brawl. Yes, they're they're institutionalised sadism. Yeah. So why do you think those particular traditions came about then, obviously, died out because they were a bit brutal. The first reason is that medieval and early modern Britain is a much more violent and cruel society than it is now. The homicide rate, even in 1600, is three to ten times 
what it is now, depending on uh, the moment. And if you're going into the fast of Lent, where you are forbidden all sorts of pleasures and all sorts of luxuries, or even things that we'd regard today as major sources of protein rather than luxuries, the prospect of the awful time to come is pretty provocative. And so letting off steam in violence and sex is uh, a very good therapy for being able to face the next couple of months. Or indeed eating pancakes and eating a lot of them, potentially. Yes. Let's move on to uh, something which is a little bit lighter. Kissing Friday. This is a new one to me, I must admit. It's a winter tradition, which is a bit less familiar. I'm going to ask you, what is it? (laughs) I think people know what that is. But um, when did it first take place? Well, it's less familiar to both of us because it's much more regional and much more recent than the other customs we've discussed. It's confined pretty well to Yorkshire and some East Midland counties with a bit of spread over borders. And it appears only in the 19th century, especially the late 19th century. And it lasts into the early 20th, and then pretty well dies out. And it's the custom among school children that boys would be able to kiss the girls as they wished upon the Friday after Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday without the girls being able to object too much. It was naturally popular among teenagers. Some areas and some schools had strict restrictions on it. Others didn't, depending on the community. But it's extremely localised. It's confined to teenagers, often young teenagers, still at school. And it's only found in that relatively restricted area of England. Does that area still have any kissing Fridays happening now or are they marked in any way? Not that I know of. They, they may have been revived in, in a few areas, but mostly it's something which people in the mid-20th century remembered as happening in schools in that area when they were young. There are some equivalent customs that don't involve kissing, involve pinching instead, like Nippy Hug Day, which is found in Leicestershire, and Nippy Lug Day, that's pinching somebody's earlobes, in Cumbria. But again, these are school children's customs, and they're very localised. Yes, I can't imagine them really happening in today's more politically correct society as well. And can you? (laughs) Yeah, I, I have some sympathy for not having them, because they must have made life extremely unpleasant and uncomfortable for uh, a lot of young women on Kissing Friday and a lot of young people in general on Nippy Lug Day or its equivalents. In many ways, it's licensed harassment and bullying, and we can do without that. Yes. Well, some of these traditions are stronger than others, as we've been discussing. Which ones are in decline, would you say? We've got a number that we've just gone through. So just to remind listeners, we've done Plough Monday, Wassling, Mummer's Plays, Valentine's Day, Shrove Tuesday and Kissing Friday. So out of those, which are in decline? Well, nothing's in decline. Either these things have declined in the early 20th century or vanished then and not been revived, or they declined and vanished then and they've been revived, or they've kept on going. So, for example, Wassling, Mama's Plays 
have declined and had a big revival in recent years. Plough Monday pretty well died out, hasn't been much revived except as a branch of Morris dancing. Valentine's Day almost died out at the same time, but had a very big revival earlier than Wassling and Mama's plays in the 1940s and 1950s. And Shrove Tuesday pancakes have just kept on going, whereas understandably the more violent sports have died out, mostly prohibited in the 19th century. Mm. So out of, out of the ones which are sort of on the up, I suppose it's Wassling and... In the last century, it was Valentine's Day. Yes, Valentine's Day and Shrove Tuesday are generally celebrated. Valentine's Day is international and commercially enormous. And Mama's plays and wassailing are back as entertainments in particular communities and for particular societies. And there may be some way of reviving Plough Monday plays in the same way that will yet come. Yes, I quite like the idea of Plough Monday. I think that's an important marker to put that marker in the soil, really, after Christmas and um, get back to work, in a way. Well, yes, as a euphemism, it works for many of us. Uh, It just so happens that Plough Monday in my university is pretty well always the first day of the spring term. So it's back to the plough euphemistically for a great many of us. Yes, or if you're a miller, back to the grindstone. (laughs) Absolutely so, and that's very often how university work can feel. (laughs) Absolutely. What would be your favourite winter tradition then, Ronald, out of all these we've discussed today? Well, in in terms of affection, it has to be Valentine's Day because it gives me an opportunity to make a fuss of the person whom I love. And I am fond of making pancakes. But I suppose my runner-up to Valentine's Day, the less predictable one, would be wassailing. Because ever since uh, friends and I began having a party to wassail my apple tree, in my tiny back garden. It's born fantastic harvests of the most luscious, juicy, ripe fruit. So it clearly appreciates it. And it works, by the sounds of things. Precisely. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discuss what lay in store after the Battle of Hastings. Thanks for listening. See you next time.